Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles together, please, to the Gospel of John. John chapter 3 and verse 13 is our text today, just one verse. We found a really good place to stop last week in our verse-by-verse study of Romans, the end of chapter 11. Lord willing, on January the 8th, in three weeks, we will come back to that study in chapter 12. But this is Christmas, and for the next two Sundays, I want us to think together about the implications of the Incarnation. The Incarnation is the doctrine that God became man. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, the birth of the Savior. Now, there's so much to say about the Incarnation, but uh, for the next two weeks, I want us to focus on two related aspects of it. This week, we're going to look at the condescension of Christ, and next week, Lord willing, His humiliation. They're very closely related. As I said, Christ's condescension is that the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, left the glory of heaven to come to earth as a man to accomplish his work of redemption. That is, he came to save sinners. His humiliation is the rejection and suffering that Jesus endured and accepted as a result of his condescension. So let's read our text today. John chapter 3, verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. May the Lord add his blessing, the reading and hearing of his word. Now you might recognize this verse as being taken from a conversation that's recorded in John 3 between Jesus and a religious leader of the Jews, a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. Now in those 20 verses that record that conversation, we find out a number of things. One is that Nicodemus came by cover of darkness. I suspect because he didn't want anyone to see him with Jesus, and he knew there would be political implications of that, ramifications. Um, He recognized Jesus as being sent from God. He had an interest in Jesus. He recognized him as being at least a prophet. Uh, Jesus saw right through what Nicodemus was there for, of course, and he cut right through the chit-chat and small talk that usually accompanies such conversations. And he looked Nicodemus right in the face and he said, you must be born again. Jesus was declaring that not only Nicodemus, but all humans, because of our sin nature, are born into spiritual death and we need spiritual life. Jesus came that we might have life. He went on to predict, Jesus did, that he would be lifted up just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness and that he would draw men unto himself. He was predicting his own crucifixion, of course, and the means through which he would bring salvation to man. And he even reveals, three verses later, God's motive for sending the Son into the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, John 3.16 tells us. And so he went on to tell Nicodemus that he was speaking to him of heavenly things, Nicodemus' mind, like most of Jesus' disciples, was in the here and now. Jesus says, I came from heaven. I'm speaking of heavenly things which I have experienced and I have seen. And then he boldly declares our text today, no one has ascended into heaven. That is permanently, that is who's left heaven and and gone, but he has descended from heaven, 
the Son of Man. So what Jesus was clearly stating is that He came down from heaven. And that's what the word condescend literally means, to come down. To go from higher rank to lower rank. From an area of high dignity to lower dignity. Now we use the adjective form of this word more than the noun form or the verb form. Condescending. We might describe someone as speaking to us in a condescending tone. That is patronizing us, talking down to us. But Christ's condescension to become man is not an insult to humanity. It's simply a matter of fact. The Bible says clearly that God, in the form of a man, Christ took on flesh and he came down to earth. In this one statement, we see three ways in which the Savior condescended. First, his place. Secondly, his title. And finally, his service. So let's look at those in order. First of all, the condescension of place. No one has ascended into heaven, Jesus says, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So Jesus came from heaven to earth. Now I said earlier that the doctrine of the incarnation is mysterious, but there are certain aspects of this biblical revelation that are crystal clear. In fact, they're so clear that I believe that a person must affirm them to be on the right side of orthodoxy. And here's one of them. The Savior existed long before the Incarnation. In other words, the second person of the Trinity did not begin His existence in the womb of Mary or in that filthy stable. Because the Scripture teaches that Jesus is God in the flesh. In fact, the Gospel of John thematically is about that. Jesus is God. And so if Jesus is God, then that means He has all the attributes of God the Father and God the Spirit. And we have stressed the attributes of God here from this pulpit recently. And one of those great attributes is God is eternal, which means He has no beginning and no end. And that Trinitarian relationship that God the Father and God the Son have, they've had since all of eternity. In fact, you go back to the book of Genesis chapter 1, when God created all things, all three members of the Trinity were there. God the Father said, let there be, and there was. The scripture says the Spirit was hovering over the face of the deep. And John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were created by Him and through Him. And so, Jesus is eternal. There's much biblical evidence for this. Matthew had us read a moment ago, Micah 5.2. And we stress, usually as pastors, Micah 5.2, the foreknowledge of God. That he predicted hundreds of years before the event where Jesus would be born in this little obscure village called Bethlehem. Now listen to it again. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. Now that's a future tense. From Micah's perspective, this had yet to happen. He says there's going to come a Savior. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. Now that's not the most amazing part of this verse, though. We read on. He says, His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Now he's speaking of something that's hundreds of years yet in the future, and yet he says this Messiah that's coming comes forth from eternity past. Now only that could be God. Isaiah 9, 6, For a child will be born to you, yet another messianic prophecy. A, a son will be given to us. Again, 800 years this was written before Jesus' birth. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now I read that too fast. 
We're all familiar with this list of titles. Let's read it again a little more slowly. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Two of those titles define him as divine. And so this is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity who has existed forever. And then, of course, that classic New Testament text that I alluded to a moment ago, John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word. He was with God and was God. So if the Son of God existed before the creation of the earth and God inhabits heaven, that means that the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, was with the Father. That was His place. That's what we mean by condescension of place. Jesus left heaven to come down to earth. Now, we studied heaven last summer. Do you remember? Had several sermons on heaven, and I thoroughly enjoyed that study. But do you remember, as we studied about heaven, what's going on in heaven right now? And what goes on in heaven all the time? And what will go on in heaven for all eternity around the throne of God? It's worship, isn't it? Isaiah 6, we see that picture of the throne room of heaven. And seraphim and cherubim are buzzing around the throne room. What are they saying? Holy, holy, holy. They're worshiping. And so again, if all the attributes of God the Father are true of God the Son, that's what was happening in heaven. God the Son was being worshipped by angels as well. And so let's put it all together. Here's what was going on in heaven before Jesus condescended to take on human flesh. He was being honored continually by the angels and worshipped. He enjoyed perfect fellowship with the Father. And He was perfectly sufficient in Himself. He didn't need us. He didn't have some unfelt and unmet sense of adventure and he wanted to come to earth to see what it was like. He wasn't lonely as we saw last week. And so the question is, why would he leave such a perfect place to come here, which is so obviously imperfect? This is why it's so amazing, as we will see in great detail next week, that he would lay aside the prerogatives of glory. As Paul states in Philippians chapter 2, he emptied himself. He poured himself out. He condescended to leave the sinless perfection of heaven to come to this sin-stained and sin-broken world occupied by sinners like us. And so next we see not only did he condescend in his place, he condescended in his title. He condescended in his title. Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And so the title that Jesus accepted by condescending is Son of Man. Now Jesus is known in the scriptures by many, many dozens of names and titles. Some Christmases back, our family received as a gift from a family in our church a beautifully framed work of art. And the artist had written out in calligraphy and in different fonts all of the titles and names for Jesus in the Bible. And I stopped counting at 50 John, for example, called him the eternal word, the light of the world. He's called the son of God in many places in the scriptures. Isaiah, as we've already read, called him wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. But you know the title that Jesus said of himself more than any other? This one we find here in John 3.13, son of man. It is a designation for the Messiah first seen in Daniel chapter 7. We also studied through Daniel few years ago. And uh, you know, I love to quote myself. And so I went back this week and listened to my sermon from Daniel chapter seven, just to remind myself 
where this title came from. You might remember a good portion of the book of Daniel is prophetic. And Daniel's talking about the various kingdoms and empires of the world that will one day be put under the feet of the Savior. And it was the Assyrian Empire, and the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, which were yet to come, and the Romans and their great kingdom of iron. But then the one that was yet to come is the one which is led by this Son of Man. And it is an eternal kingdom. It is the rule and reign of Christ eternally. And so Jesus identifies in that title with humanity. Son of Man. And He was Son of Man. And here's the miracle thing in one of the mysterious elements of the Incarnation. When Jesus took on human flesh, He took on also a human nature. Jesus is truly man, isn't He? He's not, as the heretics say, appearing to be a man. He is a man. And He's also God. He is the God-man. And so we must think precisely and clearly because that's how He wants us to think about Him. He has a human nature and a divine nature. And neither one of those does violence against the other. So Jesus identifies with man. And 61 times in the New Testament, He calls Himself the Son of Man. Even in that, He is condescending. He's coming down to us. And we'll see much more about that truth next week. Now thirdly, we see the condescension of His service. First, we've seen the condescension of His place. He's left heaven, come down to earth. The condescension of His title. That is the second person of the Trinity, the right hand of the Father, to take on a title, the Son of Man, and identify with us. But He's also condescending in His service. Now there, there are a few other titles that we need to be reminded that the Bible says about Jesus. He's the Creator. He's the Lord. He's the King of Kings. Now, thankfully, we don't live in a nation that still has a monarchy. And so we don't have a lot of people with the titles of Lord and Lady going around here, king or queen. But we've read about them, and we know enough about them to know that lords and ladies and kings and queens are not known for serving others primarily. They're known for being served historically. There are some rare examples of those who served others. But Jesus is a servant here I think is one of the most remarkable parts of the Lord's condescension. He came, he said, to serve rather than to be served. I want you to see this with your own eyes. Let's turn back a few pages in your Bible, please, to Matthew chapter 20. Go back towards the front of your Bible. We'll come to Matthew chapter 20. And we come to a place in Jesus' ministry. He's chosen his inner circle, the 12 disciples. He spends about three and a half years with them, nearly 24 hours a day teaching them. And of course, he's setting a great example for them in speech and in attitude and behavior. And they were like us. They were sort of hard-headed. They had a hard time understanding the things that Jesus was teaching them. They had in their mind, like most Jewish people, an image of the Messiah. He was this conquering hero. He was going to swoop in on a white horse. He was going to defeat their enemies. He's going to set up an earthly kingdom where Israel would become the greatest nation on planet Earth. And so the context that we find here is that the mother of two of his disciples, brothers, James and John, came to Jesus and asked him a favor. And she said, Jesus, I want something from you. And he said, what is it? She said, when you come in your kingdom, grant this, that one of my sons will sit on your left and one on your right. Now, she wasn't talking about where she wanted them to sit at dinner. 
She was saying, I want one of my sons to be first vice president and the other to be second vice president. Well, let's see how the other 10 disciples reacted to that. Verse 24, and hearing this, the 10 became indignant with the two brothers because they knew that they put her up to it. But Jesus called them to him and said, by the way, why do you think they were so angry? Because their mother didn't come first and ask the same for them. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man, there's that title again, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So two important truths Jesus reveals in these verses. One is that he came to serve, makes that crystal clear. Secondly, the extent of that service. How far did Jesus go with his service to the point of death? He's speaking here of his substitutionary atonement. He says not only to serve, but to give his life a ransom for many. No greater love, Jesus says, man has this and he lays down his life for his friends. What greater act of service is there than to give one's life in service to another? This is what Jesus is predicting of his own life. So this is true condes condescension. Now, we have anecdotal evidence of people who are viewed as important or, or famous condescending from time to time, but we're not always sure about their motives, right? Uh, I remember 17 years ago, I had been the pastor here all of four months. I got a phone call in my office from the Red Cross. And they said, you've probably been watching on the news about Hurricane Katrina that's hit New Orleans. Many of those uh, people that have been displaced by the storm are in the Superdome, which is a sports arena in downtown New Orleans. They've been trapped there for days. They're still wearing the same clothes they left their homes in, they haven't eaten, they're hungry, they're tired, they're scared. Will your church house 200 of these people indefinitely? And before I knew it, I'd said, bring them on. Not knowing how we would feed them or clothe them or shelter them. The Lord provided, didn't he? And in just a few hours, about 200 of these people showed up, three large Greyhound bus loads full, and you were there to greet them and we had doctors and nurses there to check them, and several of them had gunshot wounds. Many of them were very hungry. They were all extremely tired and dirty. You fed them and clothed them, and, and we didn't know how long this would go on. We didn't have anything, our budget, planning for this. No one saw it coming. And, and so this community started reaching out. People started calling me the next day. Can we bring money to help with this? And I'm a Baptist preacher. I've never said no to that. And... Uh, I got a call that afternoon from a very famous television preacher. And he said, I hear what you're doing there at your church. Can, can I come down? And my organization wants to give some money towards this. And I said, yeah, you're more than welcome. And so he came down later that day and he gave me a, a check. It was not a huge amount of money, but we were grateful. But then the next thing he did surprised me in my naivete. He had a camera crew come into the gym without permission began to go bed to bed to these people doing interviews. He stayed about 30 minutes. And then he went back and the editors cut that up and they began to raise money for his organization based on that. Now, I don't do that to make you cynical. 
That was my own naivete. I should have known better. But it reminded me that sometimes we can't believe what our eyes see. The Lord knows our hearts. Sometimes people condescend and do altruistic and charitable things to make themselves look good. Sometimes they do it for their own enrichment. And here's what we know about Jesus' condescension. He did not come to earth for any of those reasons. It was not a public relations tactic. It didn't, he did not do it to soothe his troubled conscience because he didn't have a troubled conscience. He's holy and perfect in every way. He didn't do it because he just wanted to see how the other half lived. What was the motive for Jesus condescending, giving up his place in heaven, taking on human flesh and the suffering that ensued because of that? Well, we don't have to wonder. He tells Nicodemus just three verses later, maybe you want to quote it out loud with me, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You never have to wonder why Jesus was willing to leave heaven. You don't have to worry about his motives. You don't have to think twice. Just understand God so loved the world. See, Jesus left the glories and comforts and perfections of heaven and came down in place, title, and service, not because of a guilty conscience, not to elevate his public image, not to discover something that he did not know. After all, he's God, he's omniscient, but because he loves sinners like us. I think there's one verse in the New Testament I have been meditating and marinating it all Christmas season, and I want to share it with you. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, this is one of Paul's letters to a troubled church, the church at Corinth. And we don't often think of this passage in terms of the incarnation, but I think we should. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, Paul, speaking to these believers in Corinth, said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus. Well, the word grace means gift. And at Christmas, we, we give gifts. That's all the word grace means. It's getting something good that we have not earned and, and we don't deserve. Unmerited favor, we sometimes say. And so Paul says to these Christians in Corinth, you know the grace of the Lord Jesus. Now that means more than you're aware of it intellectually. It means you have experienced it. You have an experiential um, knowledge of, of the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich... For your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. I think that's one of the most perfect descriptions of Christ's condescension in the whole Bible. He that was rich became poor, so that the poor could become rich. And Paul wasn't speaking just of material possessions, although because he is God, as God, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, right? Remember what Jesus said about that verse, uh, or the, God said about that. If I needed anything, I wouldn't ask you, old man, because the cattle on a thousand hills. Is, so he's not lacking in anything. That's not why he came. But he was rich. He was full to the brim with all spiritual blessings, all material blessings. But he came so that the poor, that's all of us. We say, well, I'm not poor. I live in a really nice house in Keller, Texas. I drive a really nice car. He's talking about spiritually. We not only were poor, we were paupers. In fact, in Matthew, in his Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is giving the Beatitudes, 
He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the spiritual, spiritually bankrupt. And I understand that to mean before any of us can be truly saved, we have to recognize the reality of our spiritual condition. That is, we are bankrupt. We have nothing to give. And what do I always say about how you have to come to Jesus to be saved? It's on his terms, and his terms are empty hands, outturned pockets. And so what Jesus did, he who is spiritually rich condescended to come to earth to live a perfect life and die a literal death on the cross so that the spiritually bankrupt, all of us, could become spiritually rich. That's what Christmas is all about. You know what Satan does with all the wonderful gifts that God tries to give us? He tries to ruin it, doesn't he? He tries to pollute it. He tries to change it and twist it into something it was never intended to be. And Christmas is a great example of this. What's greater than the incarnation? That God became man so that we could become rich. We ought to celebrate that. I said last night to to the crowd that was here, if anybody ought to celebrate Christmas, it's Christians, right? But but Satan has twisted it and, and made Christmas into something it was never intended to be for most of our friends and neighbors. In fact, here's the way I say it. The true reality of Christmas is that the rich became poor so that the poor could become rich. What Satan has made it is the poor have become poorer by trying to appear rich at Christmas. And we've lost the true meaning. We try to impress people with our wealth. And and what Christmas is about is recognizing that he who had true wealth was willing to give it all up. To condescend in place, in title, and in service. He didn't come to earth and and was born into a royal family or a title. He wasn't born in a beautiful palace. He wasn't even born in an antiseptic modern hospital. He was born to poor, humble, obscure people, Mary and Joseph, in a filthy stable in an isolated part of the world. The rich became poor so that the poor could become rich. I wonder about you, dear friend. You've heard a lot about Christmas and the incarnation from this pulpit over the last few weeks and years. Have you accepted it? Or is it just a series of facts in your mind? See, the story of Christmas is not just meant to be something that makes us feel better about the condition of the world. It's not just a little vacation from reality. It is reality. See, God uh, is not naive like I was in my early days of, of being a pastor. He knows us perfectly. He knows our deeds, our thoughts, and even our motives. And yet He loves us anyway. Isn't that amazing? For God so loved the world, even though He knew our hearts, our mouths, and our minds, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Him, what that means is put your faith and weight and trust in what Christ is and what He's done. And what he is, is the eternal second person of the Trinity. And what he's done is he's become man so that he could live a perfect life so that he could be the unblemished substitutionary sacrifice for sin. And he literally died on the cross to accomplish our redemption. And we get in on that. We appropriate that gift by simple childlike faith. It's not through self-reform. It's not through 
finishing the second half of our life better than our first half. It's not through increased effort. It's certainly not through New Year's resolutions. We get in on Christ's gift by faith. We come to him with this posture. Empty hands. Lord, I know you don't need anything that I could offer you, and I don't have anything to give. Outturn pockets. Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I clean. Here's the way of salvation. And Jesus condescended so that you could be saved. Let's pray and thank him for that truth. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the gospel. The gospel includes the condescension of Christ. He did not begin his existence in the womb of Mary or in Bethlehem. He's the eternal second person of the Trinity who was there before the foundation of the earth. And through him, all things have been made that have been made. And he will exist as King of kings and Lord of lords for all eternity. And as we'll see next week from Philippians 2, one day every knee will bow to him and every tongue will confess. Father, in his first coming, in his first advent, he came not as king, but as servant. He came to pour himself out and lay down his life for sinners like us. Lord, we're so glad that he did because we were helpless and hopeless to save ourselves. We know that the blood of bulls and goats and sheep and pigeons could not save us. All of those Old Testament sacrifices look forward prophetically to the one perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Father, I'm grateful that so many of my friends in this room have been granted faith and repentance by your Holy Spirit. And Father, we perhaps don't know, but maybe there's some in this room who know you not. It's likely I've given a, a, this number of people. Father, it's our desire and our prayer that everyone we know would come to know Jesus, that have their sins forgiven. Father, that invitation is open today. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, what, what a better gift at Christmas than the gospel I couldn't imagine. Thank you, Lord. We'll give you credit for anything good you accomplish here today and in the future through our church. And we ask these favors in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.